I'm Laura Farrar. We're back today with a special episode of Capital and Scott. Earlier this week, video surfaced of three police officers brutally beating a suspect outside of a gas station in Crawford County Sunday morning. That video, which was taken by a bystander, has been viewed millions of times and made national headlines. The clip shows three officers repeatedly kicking, punching, and slamming the suspect's head into the pavement. Towards the end of the video, one officer orders the bystander to leave. The FBI, the Arkansas State Police, and other federal agencies are now investigating. Criminal charges could be issued against the officers who've since been placed on paid administrative leave. Today, I'm joined by Tom Carpenter, who is the attorney for the city of Little Rock. He's involved with training police on standards and practices related to the use of force. Tom joins me to discuss the video, what the investigation could entail, and also what police should take into consideration when using force while on the job. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. I wanted to first start off by asking you, you know, when you became aware of this incident that happened on Sunday in Crawford County, and what was your initial reaction to what you saw in the footage that this bystander recorded in the parking lot of this convenience store? Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I don't, I don't know if I actually saw it on the news Sunday or saw it Monday, but I remember seeing a news blurb and looking at it, seeing that there were two or three men uh, around, uh, somebody else on the ground. And I wondered what was going on when I saw it, but I didn't pay a lot of attention to it then. But since then there's been, you know, obviously national news. And I went back and I've looked at the videos and, uh, and have had some questions about it. Backing up just a little bit, you're obviously the city attorney for Little Rock. Yes. And then also you have experience with police training in terms of when to use certain types of force with certain types of situations. Can you just discuss a little bit for our listeners what type of work you've done that would involve maybe a scenario like this? Well, my office represents the city, but it also represents the various departments and employees. And when an allegation of excessive force is made, we will represent the officer if the department after review has determined that the actions were consistent with our policy. We have a general order, it's GO 303, that deals with the question of force, excessive force, and types of force. And my office teaches an ongoing yearly course uh, on deadly force and use of force for experienced officers. And from time to time, we have also taught the course uh, in, in rookie school. So in terms of what we saw in this video, um, I don't think that we know the whole picture yet. There's maybe some dash uh, dash cam video that hasn't been released or is being uh, viewed right now. There could be, I'm not sure if there's body cam video or not from these three police officers, which included two sheriff's deputies from Crawford County rather and a, a Mulberry police officer. In your training experience, is there any justification for what we saw on this video from Sunday? The entire video is really kind of hard to tell what happened. I mean, I, I think the longest clip I saw was like about a minute, but how much of that was introduction, I'm not sure. There's one section in the video where an officer is seen evidently 
pounding the suspect's head into the pavement. And, and that's a pretty drastic action that can carry very significant consequences. And the problem I have with that is, is that while it looked like the individual was still resisting, it looked like one of the officers was trying to get control of his legs and was having troubles with that. It wasn't like the guy was getting ready to get up and run because they had three people on him and over him. And so I wondered why did that take place? And that, that bothered me somewhat. I did note that the, the, I think it was the sheriff's office that said that the MVR uh, recordings will show some additional information that, that may or may not impact it. So we have to wait about it. I mean, like, if, you know, I don't know, but if the guy was somehow hitting or or using an instrument to injure one of the officers or try to injure one of the officers, that may have led to that that extreme measure. But it was an extreme measure. And the really difficult thing here is, is that they had a suspicion of a terroristic threatening, but it sounds like everybody may have known from the get-go that this person had some really serious mental problems. So I'm kind of concerned about what was the overall thing they knew. Spitting on somebody is a misdemeanor. So that was a lot of force to be used for a misdemeanor. Threatening to turn off somebody's face is a felony. But it's a felony, particularly if there is uh, some corresponding action to indicate that's really going to happen. And in this case, what I have read, I do not know, but what I've read is he made the statement, then he got on his bike and drove from Alma to Mulberry. So even if there was a terroristic threat, was it still present? And then you've got another news report that said that they had several minutes of calm conversation and then uh, a situation erupted. So there's just a lot of questions that have to be asked. Sure. And again, just all of this is still the suspect, which uh, he still is being charged. Um, so these are all sort of allegations at this point, And all of this is is being investigated and I suppose will come, come to light. But in terms of the investigation, I mean, very quickly, we heard Governor Hutchinson talk at a press conference earlier this week about what is going to happen. So we have the Arkansas State Police involved, we have the FBI involved, we have the U.S. Attorney's Office involved, and the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. So that's a lot of uh, a lot of people looking into it to what happened. Is that normal? And then how would each sort of different uh, agency look into this, and and what would they be looking for? Good question. First off, it's not uncommon. And in this particular situation, you had video footage from a bystander. The video footage obviously caught some attention. What I think you need to look at are are several things. First, the local officials and the state police will look at what are the guidelines that have been taught on the use of force and when force becomes excessive uh, at the local level. And as I mentioned, if this person had obviously mental health problems, what kind of training had the officers received to deal with mental health issues, to recognize mental health issues? One question I had is, did any of the officers have tasers? Because uh, it strikes me that if they had tasers, this would have been an opportunity to use one that could incapacitate the individual for a few seconds so that they could get them handcuffed and then under control. Force is used to neutralize a situation. And the amount of force used under the Constitution 
can be no greater than necessary based upon several factors. The nature of the crime, uh, resisting or attempting to flee from the officers, and this whole situation itself. Everything's looked at in a totality there. And it's also looked at recognizing that anybody with 2020 hindsight can say, you could have done this, you should have done that, you might have done this. But the officer on the scene is dealing with a, a tense, rapidly evolving situation. So the question is, was the action of the officer reasonable under the circumstances? And that reasonableness is going to be determined by what was the offense, what was the nature of the actions that led to some force, what was going on so that the counteractions were not able to control what was going on. We, we teach a, in our course, we point out sometimes, you know, somebody runs a bunch of stop signs and the officer gets out of the car and asks for their driver's license and they make some comment derogatory to the officer and the officer tases that person. Is that justified? And the answer is no, because a taser is an intermediate use of force. All they have done is misdemeanor violations. And what I've said doesn't suggest that anybody's life was put at risk during all of this. And a snarky comment to a police officer is not something that's supposed to get them to snap and lose it and start using force. So the force has to be reasonable in relation to what's going on. Now, that said, uh, and I think I used this example before, you can't tell how much resistance the guy was giving. And, and I've had situations where I've been with uh, really old people who have been incredibly resistant. It's been very hard to get them under control. So, you know, did this person, was he showing, what kind of strength was he showing? Was he kicking at officers? You see one officer kick evidently at his legs. And it looks to me that what was really happening is the officer was trying to get his legs into a position so that he could get on top of them so that that would make the person immobile. And if that was not successful and then the guy was kicking around at any of the other officers around him or at him, then, you know, he needs to take a little bit extra action. Overall, having a struggle to get somebody under control is not particularly problematic here. But the banging the guy's head into the concrete is going to need an explanation. Sure. What about the also, you know, we saw a lot of uh, this this guy being punched in the face as well by this one particular officer who is located towards his upper body. You had the officer who was by his face. You had the middle officer who was more or less holding him down. Then you had the officer down towards his legs, who, I, if I recall, was uh, kicking him. But is there ever a justification for punching? Is, is that some type of, of force training move to punch a man in the face or a suspect in the face over and over like that as well? Well, uh, no. I mean, the, the, the hits to the head are questions that have to be looked at very carefully and hopefully with additional footage and, and all to say exactly what was going on. I mean, is it ever possible appropriate to do it? At some point, if the life of the officer is at risk, if the, if the physical well-being of the officer is at risk, you have to do almost anything you can do to get control. Officers have, many officers have a baton, for example, that's an ass baton, which extends, and it, it can kind of pack a wallet. No, you shouldn't just start hitting somebody on the head. But if everything else has failed and that's the only way you can get them under control, that may happen. That's why I go back to 
all uses of force are looked at from the totality of the circumstances. And the questions are whether the officers involved were reasonable under the situation, under the totality of the circumstances. I'm not saying this was. I'm not saying this wasn't. I'm saying I've seen 48 seconds and I don't know what all is involved. Sure. There are reports that the suspect, this um, Randall, I believe it's Worcester. I don't know if it's Worcester or Worcester. I'm not sure what the correct pronunciation is, but that he had allegedly hit an officer, one of the three, that uh, the officer got a concussion from this. And obviously, you know, we all are human. We know that things can escalate very quickly when you're fighting with someone in a situation where it can just go from zero to 100 in the course of a you know couple of minutes. Does that ever provide any kind of out or justification just because it happened so so quickly? Um, if that is indeed the, the case here, and again, stressing that we do not know all the facts at this point. Well, I mean, the answer to that question is yes. And most police departments teach various levels of force. They teach verbal commands. They teach soft hand techniques. They teach hard hand techniques, which can include, if necessary, punching. And then you get into intermediate uses of force like a taser a baton, pepper spray, and then you get into deadly force, such as a weapon. And it sounds like that's a stair step that, you know, one doesn't work, you go to the next, you go to the next. But really, sometimes it starts out with, how are you doing today? And suddenly you're at deadly force because the person's pointing a gun. And that's what's meant by the totality of the circumstances. And then you've got to see, you know, what is it in terms of when did the officer's head get hit that caused the concussion? Was that while they were taking him to the ground? Was he on the ground? Uh, did it happen beforehand? And then was he still involved in trying to take the person down? If he, the one that had the concussion, was the one that was hitting the head, you know, that may mitigate what was going on there because he had obviously been uh, altered uh, physically uh, by the concussion. All of that goes into it. Sure. And, you know, the kicker is that we want our officers to be able to control the situation so that somebody can be taken into custody and then somebody else can decide whether or not they've done something wrong. This is the question here. Did they go too far in taking this person into custody? Sure. So you mentioned that the mental health of the suspect might be a question There are reports coming out also that some of these police officers, at least one, had had some past records of maybe inappropriate behavior regarding uh, a potential domestic violence situation, being fired from at least one police department. How is this going to come into play just in terms of allowing someone who maybe has a history of questionable conduct to continue to work in law enforcement and then you have an incident like this happen? I think the answer needs to focus upon, you know, what was really the nature of it. I mean, I've read that that one officer has used force before. Well, if I hear that in terms of a Little Rock officer, the first question I'm going to ask is where was the person working? Somebody that's Uh, using force against a passenger at the airport and they're sitting at the desk next to TSA is one thing. Somebody that's working uh, an undercover job in in a drug area where there's a lot of weapons around is something else. So first you have to find out what was force used, why was it used, and what was the outcome of that. You said that one of the police officers had been terminated. I'd want to know 
okay, what was the termination about? What was the training the officer received? In Little Rock, for example, our officers go through almost six months worth of training, and then they're on probation for a year. And the first part of that time, they're with uh, an older officer that's supposed to help show them what's going on. On the other hand, I've seen departments where people become police officers and they basically go out and start being police officers immediately and they haven't really had any training yet. So where did that prior action come in relation to training? The other thing I think I would want to know is, uh, was this a one-time incident or was this a multi-time incident? If it was multiple times, then yes, the pattern of practice of behavior can be a basis for saying that the pra- anything that was done was improper. So they have to ask a series of questions like that before they can decide. And then the last one is he got fired or she got fired from another law enforcement agency. Fine. Was it a deputy who, when they elected a new sheriff who just got rid of all the old guard or the guard that supported his opponent? Or was it really something that led to termination because of a violation of policy uh, and, you know, under the circumstances was appropriate? Hence, the answer to your question is it is interesting, it is relevant, but whether or not it is actually applicable to what the, should happen in this case can't be decided until you get all those facts there. These are very fact-intensive inquiries. Right. Um, How long could it take to do this investigation? Is there kind of a standard? Could it be a year, three months? What what could we expect? It depends on the situation. I mean, we've got MVR tape here. We've got at least some videotape here. From what I've read, and that is really not comprehensive, there is an incident in Alma, and then there is this incident and in Mulberry. So how many witnesses do we need to look at? If there are injuries, what are the injuries and, and how were they obtained? Uh, uh, you know, did the action that the officer says he took, was it something that could have caused that type of injury? Or if the act officer says, I never did X, and yet somebody's got a particular injury, can it be explained how that injury occurred? That brings in witnesses, it may bring in forensic evidence, it may bring in evidence from the crime scene. All of that gets looked at. And if it takes a month or two months or three months, I don't think that's very uncommon. But they have taken longer in certain certain circumstances because there's a lot more information. Uh, They have taken shorter in certain circumstances because there's not a lot of information to gather. We'll be right back with more Capital and Scott. Hi, this is Laura Farrar. The stories we dive into on Capitol and Scott are just a fraction of the reporting the Democrat Gazette brings to readers every day. If you'd like to support our commitment to bringing you the latest in Arkansas news, sports, and entertainment, consider subscribing to the Democrat Gazette. With your subscription, you'll get a digital edition of the newspaper every morning, along with the latest news and updates delivered to you on an iPad provided at no extra cost. For just $34 a month, you'll get the same award-winning journalism you've come to expect from the Democrat Gazette, plus exclusive photo galleries, videos, articles, and digital extras like this podcast, all in the palm of your hand. To sign up today, call 1-800-482-1121 or visit us online at arkansasonline.com forward slash subscribe. 
Welcome back to Capital and Scott. The officers, all three, were put on paid administrative leave or some equivalent to that. Is that also common? I mean, I think my, my initial reaction was why wasn't, you know, why not unpaid administrative leave and what, what would be the difference? So why was that decision made? Well, departments don't put people on the street. I mean, you got to understand a police officer is a walking arsenal in most instances. They have a firearm. The firearm has 15 bullets in a clip, and it's got one in the chamber. So they got 16 there, and they probably have one or two extra clips with them. So they've got around 45 bullets with them. They have pepper spray. They have batons. They have training in using all of these things. Uh, some of them have tasers. Many of them have a radio on their shoulders so they can call the cavalry and say, I need help. Get over here. And so the mere fact that somebody takes on somebody that has that much force available to them indicates that there's something very wrong with that individual. So all of that has to be looked at. And then, you know, did they adhere to training? Uh, did they try to do something appropriately, but ended up doing something inappropriately? I mean, all that's what's got to be looked at. Sure. I want to uh, address just a couple more things with you. So with cases like this, I've read that it's hard to prosecute cases involving police and the use of force. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but is that is that true and why? There was a belief for a long time that there was a, a, a blue wall or wall of silence or whatever it was so that no police officer would ever say anything against another police officer. But in terms of civil rights liability, not only am I responsible not to use deadly force as a police officer but or excessive force, but if I see another officer doing it and don't stop that officer, then there is an action for failing to intervene to stop that officer if I had a chance to do so. And that's just as bad as if I had been the one taking the improper action. So I think in, that there's been a lot of uh, situations where particularly in the last few years, particularly since Ferguson, officers have been much more forthcoming. I don't think police officers want to work on the street with other police officers not in control because it's going to impact them too. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's hard to prosecute these cases because many of these officers you know, really have done exemplary work and then now they've had a bad moment. What do you do? Well, you know, if they stepped over the line, that's what a prosecution is for. Or if they've injured somebody and haven't acted properly, that's what a civil case is for. And, you know, you have parts of every community or parts of every state that are very strict and law and order oriented, and they don't believe the police ever do anything wrong and never say anything wrong. And then you have other areas in the country where it's just the opposite. And I think the question of whether or not it's easy or hard to prosecute somebody is brought about by that type of an analysis. What I think that the prosecutors think is there is a defense within the criminal code for the types of force that an officer uses. But it all goes back to the standard of was it reasonable under the circumstances? And if the answer to that is no, I don't think prosecutors are hesitating to file charges anymore. Right. So as you were alluding to with the impression of police in different parts of the country, obviously there have been events involving use of force, even deadly force, that have led to violent protests and extreme public outrage on both sides, people who are against the police, people who are for the police. How 
do the people involved with this manage? I mean, right now, I mean, this video has been viewed millions of times. There's, I've seen both sort of horror, how the police behaved, and other people saying, well, you know, this guy deserved it for whatever he allegedly did. But in terms of just the information that is being gathered right now, I'm sure there's going to be growing public pressure to release whatever video footage there might be or to release more details. But also, this is part of an ongoing investigation. So how do you manage the public part of this throughout the investigation? For the police department, it's a really difficult question because you've got two investigations. One, and that doesn't mean two different agencies. One investigation is, did this person, the officer, violate criminal law? The second one is, did this person violate the rules and regulations or orders of their particular uh, law enforcement agency? In the first one, the officer has all the rights that any person that might be charged with a crime have. So they're told that they have a right to counsel. They're told that they don't have to speak. They can refuse to participate or to provide information and such. In the civil case, though, the officer doesn't have that because the internal investigation is for whether or not a local rule has been uh, violated. If the officer doesn't cooperate with that investigation, the officer can be terminated just for the failure to cooperate. So you've got those two going on, and then that puts upon the department and the hiring agency, whether it's a city or a county or the state or the nation, that puts upon that agency obligations to protect the privacy rights and the personnel rights of the police officer. And that's why a lot of times agencies can't or don't say anything while this is going on. And then, gee, I saw this and this looks bad, therefore it's terrible, you know, becomes what the news story is because that's the only people who are talking. I don't know how you deal with that. I think all you can do is you can have a department that has a good foundation has good training, and then if something comes to fruition, they let out the information they can when they can and try to get things resolved as quickly and fairly as possible. One other point I wanted to quickly bring up that you and I discussed actually prior to recording was the the notion of unintended consequences of using certain types of force. Uh, You gave the example of Maybe there was a drunk drunk driver and uh, the guy was or woman was beaten up and just ends up not in jail. The police get in trouble and then, you know, person continues to drive drunk and four people die in a car accident. So that would be sort of an unintended consequence. How does that come into play or does that come into training when you try to coach officers on, on how to sort of process this when interacting with a certain type of suspect? The example you give actually is an Arkansas case from Northwest Arkansas where they arrested a person for driving while intoxicated, did not arrest the people in the car who were also intoxicated, and so they got tired of sitting out in the parking lot of the jail, so they drove off and they caused an accident and it did take some lives. That was a situation where the municipality was not deemed to be liable because, you know, they didn't affirmatively cause the accident. It's a really difficult area of the law. I, as an officer, if I'm a trained officer and I see somebody using excessive force and don't try to stop it, or if I don't have a chance to try to stop it, don't report it, then I can be liable for that action. On the other hand, if there is a situation where somebody is arrested, like you said, and uh, the car is left with somebody else, 
then it's what did the officer really know what as opposed to what should the officer know the question for for law enforcement is did they actively use force and the constitution protects against misconduct by police officers that doesn't provide an absolute responsibility to guarantee the safety of everybody. And and that's a hard concept to understand, but that's sort of where it is. So in terms of unintended consequences, I would look at it more like if you had a a forced situation and somebody ended up miscarrying, a woman ended up miscarrying and, and, and a pregnancy was terminated, that might be the type of thing that could aggravate it. But it's not the type of thing that's going to decide whether the force was unreasonable. One, one more thing. What about the mental? In and of, in and of itself. I don't, I'm sorry. Uh, no. Uh, what about the mental state? We talked about the suspect in this particular case, but there was a, a a case in Arkansas where there was a young man who was shot and ended up dying on the side of the road. Uh, he was pulled over. It was middle of the night, and I believe. If I'm recalling correctly, I'm not going to get too specific, but one of the officers turned out had been like off of his medication or there was some type of mental uh, state or health issue with the officer who accidentally, you know, killed this kid. What about how does that come into play when you look at the scenario? And could you say like the the, how the mental state of the officer does that matter in court at all when looking at something like this? Well, it, it does in the first place. The question is, how did he get to be an officer? How did she get to be an officer? I mean, it, it, my example, again, that police officers today are virtually walking arsenals because they are also means that you're putting somebody on the street that has a tremendous ability to impact the life of another individual and you don't do that you, you have to make sure that they're well trained that they're well qualified and that they're in good shape now if you got a police officer with mental problems probably shouldn't be a police officer and that would be something that that you'd look back at the governing body or the agency that hired them for that type of situation if you got an officer that did take a certain medication one day and and you know, was a little bit testy because he didn't feel good. Well, you know, the fact that that the medication he took was necessary for some physical element, but it wasn't really a mental health element, that's not really going to forgive the officer because he didn't take the medicine that day because he still isn't supposed to improperly use force. Right. Well, Tom Carpenter, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. You too. Follow ArkansasOnline.com for the latest updates as more details emerge from the ongoing investigations. Thanks for listening.